welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes, and I'm your host. And while Luke is away uh, killing it on his law school finals, I'm excited here to bring you some interviews this week that I've had with some folks over the past few weeks um, on some really important issues in our state and nationwide. Um, So I'm going to bring you those conversations on today's show. Um, Our first conversation is with Madeline Deason. She's a student at Walton High School, and she was a part of a group that organized a walkout at Walton High School in response to the shooting in Parkland, Florida in February. I talked to her last month about her experience organizing that walkout, what this issue means to students and to young people now, um, and some of the things that she would like to see changed in uh, gun laws in our country. Um, So that is the first conversation that we're going to bring you guys. Uh, I did have this conversation with Madeline back in March. This was right after the March for Our Lives in Atlanta. Um, but since then, there had, there's been some limited school safety measures, some spending on school safety that has passed in the Congress. And there was also some money for school safety appropriated by the state legislature, but really no movement uh, either nationwide or at the state level to really address the issue of gun violence. Um, So since the time that we've talked, uh, students nationally have kept this issue at the top of the headlines. Um, This uh, last Friday, April 20th, there was a walkout um, and a protest in remembrance of students at Columbine High School, one of the worst mass shootings in U.S. history, and and the mass shooting that I think really started kind of the modern era of uh, terror in our schools uh, when these things happen. Um, and so this is an issue that it, it definitely still needs a solution, um, but I'm really excited to see young people like Madeline who are involved in this and, and pushing this issue in a way that I don't think has been done in our politics before. Um, so with that, I'm going to turn it over to uh, Madeline and I to discuss uh, the walkout in this issue of gun violence. Um, so here are uh, myself and Madeline. Can you start out by telling us what the day of the shooting and in the aftermath of that was like for you and your classmates? What uh, went through y'all's minds that day? Yeah, definitely. So I remember the first time I was hearing the news coverage of um, the shooting was I was uh, driving on the way to my Ash Wednesday church service with my dad. And my first thought was obviously to be heartbroken, but I really didn't expect any of this political action that has happened. I honestly thought it was just going to be another Sandy Hook or any of the other shootings that have happened where it's really horrible to hear about and heartbreaking, but I didn't really expect anything to come out of that. Um, And actually the day after I left with my school orchestra to go to um, our trip to Europe. So I was sort of removed from a lot of what was going on at school. But talking to my classmates who were at school the next day, a lot of them have mentioned that um, they really wished that the school had addressed it in some way. I know my orchestra director said that that day, a lot of students were feeling really worried because the orchestra classroom is separated from the main building and they weren't really sure what would happen if a shooter was at our school and they were asking about safety in that classroom and they made some safety measures on the doors and stuff. So I know for me and for a lot of the students, it was a really um, different experience from a lot of the mass shootings just because the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas seems so similar to our high school and because it was a high school and people our age and also 
um, just at first thought for me, I didn't really expect anything to come out of it. So it's been really amazing to see the Parkland students really standing up and everyone across the country making sure that this could really be the time for a change. So how did you and students from your school go from from seeing this uh, shooting in, in the aftermath to deciding to to do something about it? Because you all staged a walkout at your school, right? Yes, yes, we did. Um, I know we were all really inspired by the students at Parkland who had experienced this really intense tragedy and were so brave in immediately starting to take action, giving speeches, hosting that town hall with their representatives and organizing um, this walkout and the March for Our Lives. So when we saw them doing that, it was really inspiring for us. But a lot of us, once we heard the walkout was happening, um, I know Natalie, who was another one of the organizers, is a youth ambassador for the Women's March Youth Branch. And so she heard about the walkout. And a lot of us organizers hadn't really known each other before, but we started reaching out to people who seemed like they would be interested in being a part of this protest and this movement. Um, So we, yeah, we were really inspired by the Parkland students. And when we heard that this was something that would be going on nationally, we felt really inspired to be a part of it. Um, And so y'all are at a, what high school are y'all at? Walton. And Walton's in Cobb County, right? Yeah, it is. Um, So Cobb County, um, I'm sure that some of our listeners might have seen some of the reporting about this. Cobb County is one of the the school districts that said that they would punish students if they participated Mm -hmm. in a walkout. Um, So did you all get some kind of punishment for that? Yeah, we did. Actually, today was our in-school suspension. So all day today, um, there were 266 students who participated in the walkout. Um, we counted. My friend stood at the gate to the football field and counted each person that walked in. So that's how we know that. But all of us received in-school suspension. Almost everyone um, had that suspension today. There were a couple people who were on a field trip, but basically around 250 students were in the theater today. We were taken out of all our classes um, and we were suspended for today for our participation in the walkout for just 17 minutes because they called it a minor school disruption. Um, and so that's why it was classified or the punishment was the in-school suspension. But the in-school suspension only lasted 17 minutes or that was the whole day? No, no, no. It was all day. Oh, okay. Today. Yeah, the walkout was 17 minutes. But Oh, okay. Um, so what's been the reaction of, uh, some of your, your classmates and parents and teachers and coaches to the the demonstration and the March have, have they been supportive of y'all or have y'all run into resistance from more than just the school's administration and the district? Um, well, a lot of our community has been really supportive. I know on the day of the walkout, some of our parents and some community members who weren't our parents, like um, Essence Johnson, she's a candidate running in House District 45, which is where I and some other Walton students live. But they came out and were holding signs um, outside the school, even though they weren't allowed to be on school property that day, they held signs in support of the walkout. Um, so there have lo- a lot of our parents and a lot of the community members have been supportive. Um, and teachers weren't um, really allowed to like express how they felt about this, but I personally haven't experienced any um, opposition or anything. But 
so it's been really encouraging to see how our parents and different community members have supported us. Um, but it, there were also students who I know faced more opposition from their families who weren't exactly in agreement. Um, and there were some students who were afraid of possible consequences from universities, um, but um, and the disciplinary action. But overall, it's been really positive aside from the county and the administration's reaction to it. Did um, did you hear anything about any concrete repercussions from like universities related to this, or is um, that just no? A worry? Actually, th- I think it was just some people were nervous. But I mean, there's was the list of the there was a website called like Never Again Colleges that listed all the universities that had made statements, and there were so many universities. Like basically, all the colleges I applied to this year came out releasing statements that said we support students who choose to participate in this movement, who choose to take advantage of their First Amendment rights and stand up for this thing they believe in. So um, it was really encouraging to see how most colleges and universities recognized that this was something that was really important to students and definitely worth it and not something that ever should uh, negatively impact their acceptance to a university. Um, can you describe uh, the March for Our Lives in Atlanta last weekend? Um, this was something that y'all participated in too, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was really amazing. Um, it was so encouraging to see how fired up everyone was. I think um, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution said there were like 30,000 people. The organizers said there were like 70,000 people. So I guess somewhere in between those numbers. But there were so many people there and everyone was so enthusiastic to um, stick up for common sense gun reform. And it was really amazing to see um, I, uh, some students from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas were actually at the march and they gave speeches that were really moving. Um, and John Lewis was there and he talked about the importance of good trouble. And um, even if you get in trouble for it, to stand up for what you believe in. So it was a really inspiring day to see all these people fired up and ready for change. And also it was really awesome to see um, there was voter registration at the march. And there are so many people who are registering to vote and who are ready to not just march one day out of the year, but then to vote for candidates that support common sense gun reform and to continue working for this movement. So that it was a really awesome day. And is that, did you get the sense that this energy will last beyond uh, these demonstrations and protests and that uh, this may actually lead to some change at the ballot box? Is this going to get people out to vote? Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, At Walton today, during ISS, um, myself and some of the other organizers and other walkout participants yesterday, we wrote, our Congress people's addresses on 250 envelopes, and we handed them out before ISS started today so that people could send letters because we aren't allowed to use our phones. And during the walkout, we called our representatives about this, and people are planning to continue that. And I know a lot of students um, have registered to vote now and are planning on voting in the primary and in November. Um, So I think a lot of students that I know really are really focused on making sure that this isn't just one walkout, one march and done, that it's really something that continues. So it's been really cool to see that. Is um, Were y'all kind of aware of just kind of how stuck the politics on this issue has been uh, in the wake of other mass shootings going all the way back to Columbine in the late 90s? Yeah, I mean, I don't think... 
in some ways, yeah. But also I think we've become sort of almost desensitized to this happening. Like I remember when Sandy Hook happened and I was younger then. And I mean, I've remembered shootings that have happened since then. And I mean, partially now that I'm a little older, I, I know what's going on more, but I feel like this is the first time I felt really like something could change. Like people are really ready for that change to happen. But I mean, it is discouraging to see um, how much hasn't happened, I guess, how many times this has happened and we aren't sticking up for it. And I know um, something they addressed at the March for Our Lives in Atlanta and something that people have been talking about is how um, it's interesting that this was the, the shooting or this is the issue of gun violence that has really changed it, that there have been a lot of like communities of color, like Black Lives Matter activists and other people like that, students who have staged walkouts and those sorts of protests and aren't getting the same or haven't got the same attention. So, yeah, I mean, it is discouraging that it hasn't happened yet, but I think this time it seems to me at least like people are really ready to make a change. Yeah, I think the thing that I've noticed is that, and I guess I, I'm in my late 20s, so um, we I've always, at least up to now, been sort of the younger, more politically engaged group. And so it's it's inspiring to me to, to look back towards folks who are even younger than me. And this was something that we were not engaged in. Uh, you know, people that I knew in high school and in like young college days. And so I think that that's something that to me that's kind of stood out about this is that yeah, your generation yeah. um, is is much more active and like much more clear about what they want in mm-hmm. at a younger age. I think it's partially just because, I mean, to me and to a lot of my classmates, everything just seems so much crazier in politics right now. So I think everyone feels like, they have to pay attention more. But a thing that's been really interesting to me about um, the walkout and everything is how um, in in my high school, it's really crossed party and ideological lines. Like, I mean, we met at the Young Democrats Convention and I identify as a Democrat, but a lot of my friends who walked out um, and a lot of the people that walked out are not Democrats, they're not liberal. Um, they, but they strongly believe in common sense gun reform and preventing these mass shootings from continuing to happen. So it seems like this is an issue that a lot of people can really unite on and make sure that it does change. So could you talk a little bit about some of the common sense gun reforms that you'd like to see? What does that phrase mean to you? And and yeah. are these things that um, can happen like locally in Georgia or at the local mm-hmm. level? Or is this a congressional issue in Washington? Yeah. Yeah. Well, some things I talked about in my letter that I wrote to our representative, Karen Handel, um, today um, was making sure that there are universal background checks. I know that there are are loopholes like when you buy a gun off the internet or at a gun show that the background checks aren't the same. So I think that is something that needs to be closed because it seems logical that um, there should be a background check to make sure that dangerous people aren't buying guns. Um, Another thing that we've talked about is making sure that people don't have access to bump stocks so that they can convert semi-automatic weapons to fully automatic weapons, because that's something that's been used in mass shootings a lot. 
Um, so those are a couple of the things. And I know in Georgia, something that we as high school students heading to college soon are really passionate about um, is the campus carry laws in Georgia. Um, we don't we don't think that that should be a part of our college education in Georgia, having guns, because um, I know that when um, Jefferson and Madison established uh, the University of Virginia, one of the things they said was that there should not be guns in the school because it's a place for education and learning, not a place um, for guns. So that's something that we in Georgia um, see like as a local thing is the campus carry laws that were passed um, this, I guess, in 2017 in the Georgia State House. So that's a local thing. But um, some things that we think are as part of common sense gun reform are those universal back background checks and um, banning bump stocks so that stuff like this doesn't keep happening. Well, Madeline, thank you so much for joining us and, and for all of the advocacy and activism that you and your classmates are doing. I'm I'm personally just really inspired by the work that, that you all have been doing and really excited to see uh, the next generation coming along and uh, probably uh, picking up and hopefully solving an issue that all of us have failed to solve so far. Thank you. The second conversation I have for y'all this week is with uh, Jonathan Wallace. He's a state representative from Watkinsville. He's also an expert on issues related to information technology. And so I had him on to talk about a bill dealing with unauthorized access to computers and a bill that has not yet been uh, decided on whether it will be signed or vetoed by the governor. Um, so here is that conversation with myself and Representative Wallace. All right. Uh, so we're now joined by Representative Jonathan Wallace. He's a Democrat out of Watkinsville. Uh, Representative Wallace, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Um, so today we're talking about Senate Bill 315. And um, this is a bill that deals with un unauthorized access to computers and computer networks. But um, this is one we didn't talk a lot about during the session. So could you just kind of let our listeners know what this bill is and what it does? Sure. It's a, it's a pretty short bill on its, on its face, and uh, the main intent of this bill is to criminalize unauthorized access to a computer or computer systems or a network. Uh, and it's got a couple of exclusions uh, where they carve out a couple of carve outs to make sure uh, a couple of ones that we, we fought for, one of which was to, uh, to not criminalize if somebody is violating a terms of service. So, you know, there's agreements that when you go onto a website and you're saying click here to say you agree to all these terms that Virtually no one reads. Um, we made sure that there was a carve out in there, um, but it's it's basically criminalizing that access and it's making it a high um, high misdemeanor, which is a five thousand dollar fine and up to a year in jail or probation. Uh, so it's it's a it's uh, it seems pretty innocuous on its face, but I think there's fundamentally some concerns that I had that we we're, we're still hoping to see. Uh, hopefully see a governor a governor veto um land on this bill so that uh, because i think it's not really going to accomplish what what but the the original authors intended for it to accomplish yeah so could we dig in a little bit on what the original intent of this bill was like why did the bill sponsor say that this was something the state needed to put into law sure this goes back a couple of years and it's related to some uh the secretary of state's office uh, as i understand it so there was a security researcher who was uh, looking into 
uh, the, the, security, the Secretary of State's website with, with uh, relation to uh, our voter rolls. Uh, so this is the this office is uh, was currently held at KSU at the time. Uh, so they were hosting all of the information about our voting systems and our voter rolls. And what he did is he sat down in his lap, his desktop, his computer, and he and he basically did what Google did. He just went and looked at everything on the website. And when he did that, he went to lunch. And when he came back from lunch, uh, you know, an hour later. Instead of finding just a few files on his computer, he found 6.7 million voter records. Uh, now, this is pretty frustrating. And as I understand it, the, the attorney general's office was like, hey, what's going on here? Why? Uh, he tried to report, excuse me, I'm skipping a step. He tried to report this to KSU. Uh, they didn't fix it. Uh, he went and spoke with folks at Georgia Tech and said, hey, I'm trying to get in touch with KSU. Can you all help me connect to the right folks? Then... He uh, after after those two efforts failed to get these this ex- information that's being exposed, and it wasn't just our voter rolls; it was also the usernames and passwords for the machines that tally up our votes. So he went. He finally said, "I got to go public about this." Went public around this. There's a lot of egg on the face of some folks, and so the attorney general. This is a bill from the attorney general saying we need this bill because when they asked for the FBI to come and investigate him, the FBI said there's nothing that he did that was wrong. He did what Google does. He just went and looked at every link that was on the website and found a bunch of unsecured information. So this bill would say that that would be an illegal act so that he could be, then be prosecuted and would give uh, – that was the, the original intent of the bill is to give the prosecutors another tool in their tool belt to address this type uh, – to address unauthorized access. And they, they, they ostensibly, it's because it will help make us more safe. Um, but I think it's going to have the exact opposite effect. Yeah, what are some of the unintended consequences of this bill? It, it, so, is it common in sort of like the cybersecurity world for people who are you know, researchers or, or people who are acting independently to kind of do these security checks? Um, and and what was the potential impact on the work that they're currently doing? Yeah, let me let me let me draw a quick distinction. He wasn't doing a security check. He was just clicking on all the links on the website. So this is this is nothing different than you or I would do if we would go to a website and we said, I'm going to click on every blue link on this page. Anything that's Google, I'm going to click on that. That's essentially what he did. So it's not even it's not even doing like uh, necessarily security research. But but for those folks who do, they do might maybe go and want to download the whole everything that's on a website, which is should be perfectly fine to do. Those folks, you know, they should be free to do that. Uh, those folks, they when they find a problem, you want them to say, hey, you know what? I noticed there's a problem here. Let me let me get it fixed. Let, let me let you know. If you're a business owner, you want them to tell you that there's a problem here. Well, some business owners uh, are would would prefer you not to tell them. They don't want people to know that they made a mistake, and they don't want to spend the money to fix it. Uh, and the problem with that fundamentally is that it's your eyes information that live on there. It might be our credit card information. It could be personal information about us. But if a company can use the threat of a lawsuit to keep people quiet about it and then not fix the issue. That's fundamentally keeping us all less safe. And so security researchers or people who stumble across these things are just not going to report them, and then they won't get fixed, which ultimately is going to lead to more identity theft. It's going to lead to uh, more – and at a, on an economic level, if you're a security person, you're not going to come to Georgia and do your work. You're going to say, well, I've just got some laws that are, are not – conducive to me doing my work and there's a possibility somebody could try to throw the law book at me whether it's warranted or not so why would i take that risk i'm just not going to do the research so that's going to undermine us we're in the number three state in the nation uh, we do 4.7 billion dollars in cybersecurity here in the state we've got some uh 
for the folks in the industry, name recognition company that started here back in 93, 94 that have done amazing things that helped grow our economic uh, base here in the state and grow us in a, in a technology perspective. Uh, it's really going to undermine the growth of that industry of the long haul if this bill uh, ends up uh, becoming a law. Is there, in the short run, do you think there's any impact on the new um, cybersecurity and, and technology-related stuff that's going up in Augusta? No, I, I don't think that's actually impacted. And the reason why is because those folks are federal employees, and they're going to be they're going to be exempted from this. So they're not. This is sort of something that's not really covering them. It's not helping them. It's not hurting them. Uh, they don't. They're. It's not a concern to them. Uh, this will affect more uh, university students who are at the university. They're not covered by this. Now, the, the, the university professor or their graduate students may be doing research work underneath them. They are protected, as I understand it, from the uh, bill's authors. But if you're a student, you're technically not part of the university. You don't get that sort of blanket uh, coverage that's going to make it safe for you to do that. And, and sometimes when those students are doing that type of work, they're going to go and that's how they're going to do it. They're going to find those vulnerabilities. Uh, as part of the research, they, they need, you know, we want to make sure that we're getting that information out and helping get those things fixed, not keeping it underneath, you know, hidden and, and, and unexposed. Because the other thing is the bad folks know about these things. They're not, they're, they're, they're running, they're running programs. It's not a person typing in a keyboard. They're running programs to scan these things. And I talked to uh, a, a system administrator at the uh, George, Georgia Institute of Technology and he told me that they saw 500,000 attempts to break into their systems in one day. Each day, they see that. So the bad guys that we're trying to catch here, those folks, they're not in the U.S. They're in China. They're in Iran. You know, uh, they're in Russia. And they're not, they're not typing in a keyboard. So this bill is not going to help us catch bad guys. And, in fact, it's going to make us less safe. Um, so for people that haven't followed this story closely, the city of Atlanta uh, made headlines when they their computer systems were hacked. Is does this bill make things like that more likely to happen, or or is that kind of a different issue in and itself too? Um, they're related in that uh, that the, the security of that information, the security of our the public's information that is being held by the city of Atlanta, we want that to be safeguarded. Um, so if somebody had noticed a problem with the city of Atlanta systems and reported it in this bill or law, then they they could be subject to prosecution. So they would be less likely to report. So in the long term, it's going to make us less safe for this bill if this bill does pass. Uh, what I will say is that the folks who the city of Atlanta were negotiating with, because for folks who may not be super familiar with this story, uh, this was ransomware. So the, what they do is they infect the systems. You know, they get a virus in there. They infect the systems. They hack the systems. And then they encrypt all the files. And they say, pay us $10,000 or $50,000, and we will unlock your files for you. Um, and so they're, they're basically ransoming your information. Uh, but those folks who do this, they're not in the U.S. These are folks in, who are in another country altogether. So, yeah, in the long run, this, this bill should have passed, would make us less safe, would make it, I think, more likely that we would see these types of problems going forward. Um, but it's not, they're not directly connected right now. And are there things that we can do as individuals to protect to protect ourselves from data breaches like these, or are we kind of at the mercy of big entities like government organizations or, or corporations like banks and Facebook that, that house a lot of our data if we're also outlawing some of this um, white hat security research? Yeah, unfortunately we are at the mercy of the large organizations on an individual level. It's very, there's, when you think about it, um, 
the money's not there on the individual level for a bad person or a crook to try to come out and, and attack us because they'd rather go after where there's a lot of information all at once. So Google, for example, they, I know how they take their, their information security practices very seriously, um, and they encrypt everything throughout their network. These are things that they've talked about to, that they've been doing in the past. I'm sure that Facebook is definitely tightening up their ship now um, and trying to do a better job going forward. Um, but there's so much information out there that the, the bad guys are typically going to go after the larger companies, but they're doing it in an automated way. So uh, on the individual level, unless you're running stuff out of your house, which most people don't, uh, running your own servers out of your house, which that's, that's not, not something that happens as often, it's, it's, not as, it's not something to, concern about, to be concerned about on the individual level. So the way we have to work now is, is and it's a slower process, it's a political process. We need to be engaging with folks to uh, understand how this stuff works, uh, making sure we make uh, our positions and concerns clear to those folks. That would be somebody like myself and allow us to go and have those uh, battles in the legislature to try to get the right type of laws that are actually going to help us be safe in the long run. Um, that's where we're at now. Um, now, the interesting question or interesting point that's raised by your question is that the attorney general's office has a uh, department that's nestled underneath it that is to protect the public interest. Uh, and my contention is that this is their responsibility is to help protect the public interest. And anytime your or my information or a listener's information is being exposed, uh, that's the public interest usually uh, being uh, degraded there. Folks, you know, it's, we're, we're less likely to do commerce on the internet, we're less likely to engage on the internet, and uh, because we'll, we'll be more reticent, which is going to hurt us, uh, hurt, hurt, hurt us economically in the long run. So um, I would expect the, the attorney general's office this would be right up their alley to say we do want to solve this. We do want to solve this problem of keeping us safe, but I just don't think this is the right way to go about it. And um, do you have any predictions about whether Governor Deal will sign this bill? Because this is a bill that's made it out of the legislature, but is on his desk for signature or veto right now during this 40-day period for the governor. Any predictions on whether or not he'll sign it? And if people want to uh, register their opinion on this bill with the governor, is there a way for them to do that? Yes. Uh, so I, my hope my hope is that he decides to veto it. And, uh, and, and for folks who are not clear if he doesn't sign it it'll still become a law if he does sign it it'll become a law so the, our hope is that he has to take an explicit action to veto it. we don't have the pocket veto here in georgia and uh and so the, there's a way to get engaged um the eff uh, which is the electronic frontier foundation they've got a letter that you can and a form that you can go to and sign on to you can call the governor's office and express your concerns uh and concerns about you know uh undermining the public interest over the long haul the economic impact of type of messages that it sends to uh, to the the security industry, which I think is going to be a growing industry, as more and more things, uh, more and more commerce and work and information is stored online. Um, and so, go to the EFF's website. They've got a form letter. If you want to do do that, you can sign up there, and it'll automatically email them. You can give them a call and just register your concerns. Uh, those two actions, I think, are the, probably the biggest two actions that you can do right now to to hopefully convince them to veto this bill. All righty. Well, Representative Wallace, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this really important issue. Yes, yeah, my pleasure. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. And then for our final conversation this week, I'm joined by Fred Swan. He's a Democratic candidate for Agriculture Commissioner, a statewide office here in Georgia. He's going to be taking on Gary Black, the sitting Agriculture Commissioner, in the fall. Um, I talked with Fred about you know why he wants to be Agriculture Commissioner 
what he would like to do with this job if he got it and asked him to react to some of the pressing issues going on nationally related to Trump's moves on tariffs and trade and this uh, little trade spat that he's got with China and the way that uh, the issue of immigration is being handled on a national level and what that means for Georgia's farmers, the, the workforce in Georgia's agriculture industry, um, and, and what he thinks that we should do about this. Um, so I had a really interesting talk with Fred and so here I am with Fred talking about his race for agriculture commissioner. All right. So I'm now joined by Fred Swan. He's a uh, Democratic candidate for commissioner of agriculture, a statewide seat. Uh, Fred, thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks for having me. Um, so let's just start with kind of the first question, which is why are you running for commissioner of agriculture? I'm running for commissioner of agriculture because there hasn't been someone looking out for uh, the what I would consider the forgotten man and forgotten woman for a long time, the small farmer who's getting choked out by big ag corporations, uh, the people who are living in food deserts and urban areas. There's just a whole group of people who have not been considered and taken care of, and that's kind of what I'm trying to work towards is, making the agency work for more people. So you began this race as a candidate for Congress, right? That's correct. So could you tell us a little bit about why you uh, switched out of a congressional race and into this statewide agriculture commissioner race? The biggest reason was the reason why I jumped into this race to begin with, which was which is why, the reason why I jumped into the commission, congressional race, which was nobody was running in that seat, which was uh, the 8th District against Austin Scott, and I really felt that he should have opposition. And while that hasn't changed, I realized that Gary Black, the Republican Agriculture Commissioner, would also go unchallenged as we got, as we got through into uh, qualifying and since I'd been running in an agricultural and rural district, I already had a familiarity with those issues, and I didn't feel like we could let a statewide seat go unchallenged. So I decided to shift my focus from one to the other. So I think many of our listeners may not be super familiar with the position of agriculture commissioner. Um, so could you just talk a little bit about what the responsibilities of the commissioner are and what would you would like to do with this job if you were to get it? Sure. The agriculture commissioner, it's a very wide and varied position. A lot of people think that it has just to do with farming and rural areas, and some people may know that it has to do with food safety, and that's about it. But really, it has to do with not only the safety of food sales, you know, where you buy things in your supermarket and, and other retail sources, not food service, which is done locally, but it also has to do with um, animal control and animal welfare. So how humane or inhumane, in some instances, are our shelters in treating people? Um, excuse me, in treating animals. How, what kind of shelters do we have and what methods do they use? And also the regulation of what are called puppy mills and trying to stamp out those. But also because of the retail food issue, they also deal, can deal with 
the pressing issue of food deserts and trying to make certain that everyone has access to quality food and fresh produce and making certain that really does not matter what zip code you live in if you have access to quality food. So those are issues that the Ag Commissioner can deal with, but I don't believe they have. And so on some of those issues, particularly around like food insecurity and food deserts, uh, do you have ideas for what you would do as Agriculture Commissioner? And and does this involve working with the legislature or do you have um, some like unilateral authority on things that you would do in your capacity as Agriculture Commissioner on things like food insecurity? Both. (laughs) It's not an either or proposition. Uh, I would say both. Uh, I would say that First of all, within my authority, I can work to uh, encourage and help uh, the creation of small farmers markets in food deserts. I can also help to, uh, if, if a small corner store that wants to do fresh fruits and vegetables, I can help them get access to capital or help them get through red tape. Uh, those are the kind of things that I think that we could be working on as an advocate in the agriculture department but also in terms of the legislature i can be working with them on trying to figure out how we can use tax abatement zones in order to um, encourage uh, more food uh, places such as supermarkets small corner grocery stores uh, that sort of thing to be able to come in and work with them but we should be identifying and targeting these areas early on so that we're not suddenly shocked by the closure of a big retail grocery store, a big supermarket, and suddenly a place that wasn't a food desert is now a food desert. Is is the issue of climate change on your radar? And, and what impact is climate change having on farmers in Georgia? Absolutely. Climate change is definitely on my radar. That is something that we have to be aware of because it's going to affect the not only the amount of crop, but the conditions of the crop that we're going to see coming in the next several years. We see that climate change has already had a big impact on middle Georgia's peach crop. Uh, when the winters are too warm so that the crops either don't don't come at all, or they ripen not uh, to not their fullness. And so there are some things that we can do with regard to climate change. There's some things that are a little bit outside of our control because they're dealt with at a federal level. Uh, I, I see my office more as being aware that climate change is real, it's man-made, and it's coming down the barrel at us. And we need to be ready to help and assist the small farmer who's going to get impacted by climate change more than the large ag conglomerates. The large ag conglomerates, one of the things about them is that they've got farms spread all throughout. They've also spread out their environmental risk. So they really don't care about the fact that there may be a cold patch here, a warm patch there, because the climate is so disrupted and disturbed. But the small farmer one bad winter, one huge bad hurricane, 
can wipe them out, and that can lead to bankruptcy. That can lead to more farm closures. We need to be ready to step in and help when the effects of climate change come and look to help uh, in, help to affect uh, more environmental-friendly processes into farming. Another issue that's uh, garnered some headlines in the last couple of weeks are uh, moves by the Trump administration to impose tariffs on Chinese products, and uh, the Chinese have retaliated on some agricultural goods in the U.S. Um, could you talk a little bit about the impact on Georgia of this trade dispute between the U.S. and China? Is that something that farmers are concerned about? Oh, and the other uh, thing that I noticed about uh, this story is that Sonny Perdue, uh, former Georgia governor and now the, the National Agriculture Secretary, um, he's pledged, along with the Trump administration, to try to blunt the effects of, of trade policy against farmers. But do you have any opinions on uh, you know, how good those uh, offers from the Trump administration are on trying to soften the impact of these trade moves on farmers? Well, I have no idea what they're going to do to try to soften the impact on farmers because farmers are already feeling an impact. I've heard I've heard stories from some farmers about losses already just from soybean futures in the tens of thousands. Now, many farmers were encouraged uh, a decade ago to go into soybeans because they were going to have a huge market in China. Some took it, some didn't. But those who took it have reaped benefit of our trade with China. Now China has slapped a tariff on soybeans. And just the fact that they slapped the tariff, they haven't even gone into effect yet, has sent commodity futures into turmoil. So we're seeing issues with soybeans. We're seeing issues with pork because pork, China is a huge pork importer. Uh, they use parts of the, the pig that, that we don't. So there's more value to each hog uh, for a pork producer. Uh, so the fact that they're being limited, basically tariffs are a terrible idea. I'm, I'm very much against tariffs. I feel like they are basically an inverse tax. Even before China slapped the agricultural tariffs on us and tariffs on other things, we saw markets plummet just on the steel and aluminum tariffs we put on China and some of our other supposed allies. And so because they knew that there were going to be knock-on effects from those tariffs, if nothing else had happened, that would have been essentially a tax on all other goods. But they knew there was going to be more tit-for-tat I'm going to tear you here. I'm going to tear you there. That's what we get, we get into when we get into a trade war. And Trump seems to claim that trade wars are easy to win. Well, he might think that when he's not affected. But for the thousands of farmers out here who are going to have bankruptcies and not be, have a, be able to provide a future for their children, they're the casualties of the trade war. I need him to look them in the eye when the bank is foreclosing on their farm and tell them that trade wars are easy. Another issue that uh, is on top of headlines at the federal level, and, and there was some legislation considered uh, in Atlanta on this issue too, is the issue of immigration. Um, so could you talk a little bit about the role that immigrants play 
in uh, Georgia's agriculture industry? And um, are there are there impacts on Georgia farmers from this hostile climate to immigrant workers uh, that we've seen in Atlanta and in Washington? Absolutely. The issue is that while Georgia farmers work their hardest to hire legal help, this hostile environment doesn't really seem to differentiate between someone who's legal and someone who's not. Basically, if you talk funny and you look brown, you're in a suspicion. And there are people who may be naturalized citizens, have their green card, have some other visa, who still feel like they have to hide. And so they're not going to come out and do the kind of work that we need people to do. And so you have stories of crops rotting in the fields because they can't find enough help or crops prices going way up because uh, they're having to pay such higher wages uh, in order to pick them. Basically, we needed we need to work on an overall labor structure that does not rely so heavily on migrant work. But at the same time, we have to understand that right now we rely on migrant workers for our for our continued lifestyle and these draconian measures are only going to hurt us in the end. And are there things um, in terms of, of changing the setup of labor in agriculture that can be done at the state level, or is that primarily a federal issue? I mean, I think that it's primarily a federal issue because of visas. One of the things, though, about the agriculture commissioner is that they can lobby both the state legislature and Congress, uh, our agriculture commissioner has on a couple of occasions gone and testified to Congress. And that's one of the areas in which the agriculture commissioner not only acts as a regulator, he acts as an advocate. And we need to be advocating for policies that help regular Georgians and not large corporations. And uh, one other policy question for you. I was kind of surprised to see you mentioned uh, medical marijuana on your website. Um, could you just talk a little bit about your position on medical marijuana and recreational marijuana and uh, what this has to do with uh, Georgia's agriculture industry? I'm going to say this about medical marijuana and recreational marijuana. Those are essentially law enforcement issues that the legislature would have to change their views on. However, if we're going to begin cultivating things like CBD oil and other things like that, there's no reason why we should not be cultivating uh, those plants in state. If, we gonna, if we're going to say that those have a valid medical reason, then there's no reason why we should be leaving money on the table and leaving out a cash crop and leaving out a whole industry. We could be cultivating in-state. We could be processing in-state. We could be taking care of our people in-state and making them, keeping the money here as opposed to sending it out to Colorado and all these other places, California. We should be taking care of our people here if we're going to say that those things have a valid medical reason. I've, I've been very strong advocate of saying that I would like the legislator to do a referendum on medical marijuana. But if they do, I would also push for in-state cultivation because I feel that, one, if it's the will of the people, the referendum will bring that out, and we should be following the will of the people. And, two, if we're going to be 
allowing it, then we should cultivate it in-state. And are there any other uh, important issues or, or differences between you and your opponent that we've missed that you'd like to hit on? You know, the biggest thing I would say is I'm overall, I'm trying to work for the small farmer and I'm trying to work for the person who uh, has been put upon economically. You know, I need to, we're looking out for the people who are in most need of assistance. And I feel that my opponent has been more of a help to big ag corporations uh, than he has to the regular person on the street or the small farmer just trying to get by. And that would be the biggest difference between us and the way we look at policy. And you're, do you have a Democratic opponent in the primary? I do not. So you're uh, slated to go up against Gary Black in uh, the November election in statewide? That is correct. Um, so if people would like to learn more about your about you or about your campaign, um, how could they do that? They can go on my website. I'm at www.swanforga, that's S-W-A-N-F-O-R-G-A, Dot com. You can also look up my campaign's Facebook page, Fred Swan for Agriculture Commissioner. And you can also follow me on Twitter, Swan, at Swan for GA. All right. Well, thank you, Fred, for being somewhat, uh, for being on the show. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.